take the right door on your way down. There's no telling where you'll end up. Can you make it through? To the night's end. friend. Good to see you. I've got a great detective story for you today. Trust me, it's not always about bringing justice. This story will show you that. Some things are too much for some people. Sit down and listen up. A myth we call emptiness. Written by Jeremy Thompson. That morning, a Marcus scrawled message streaked anniversary from the dry erase board on Gal's refrigerator. Red traced over with black, perhaps to obfuscate evidence of a trembling hand. Thirteen years to the day it was. Escaping the cityscape, and its twice-baked putrefying garbage miasma, thick enough to chew, Gale journeyed to the miles-distant steambed, long-dried, whose malevolent ambience had survived time's passage undiminished. Rustling in gelid wind, weeping willows hem her in near entirely, encompassing all but the pitted dirt road she'd arrived by. Jagged-leafed Sambucus cerulea specimens discard summer berries, Splitting in tomorrow's sunlight, they'll discharge blue-black pus. No insect songs sound. Perhaps the night has digested them. Seated upon polished stones, listening for echoes of liquid sussurus that had been, Gale exists, spotlit by headlights, oblivious to the fact that her station wagon's battery shall soon perish. Maliciously ebon is the night, an oily cloud penumbra enshrouding the moon and stars. Sucking Zippo flame into her cigarette, Gal wonders, Where is she? This was her stupid idea. What the fuck? Wishing to be anywhere else but unable to budge, she listens for an approaching car engine, an erstwhile partner's arrival. Why did I return to this loathsome sight? She thinks, nervously scratching her sagging countenance. Why have I been dreaming of it? Why does spectral water make me shiver? Have I always been here? Since that night, am I finally to reclaim my lost pieces? Eventually, the distinctive sound of an unforgotten hatchback arrives. A 1980 Chevy Citation. Still running after all these years, Gal realises, attempting to grin. There's only one woman on earth indifferent enough to retain such a vehicle. And look, here comes Valletta. Fucking wonderful. Claiming a seat beside Gail, the woman foregoes a greeting to remark, You put on weight. Perhaps I claimed what you lost, Gal responds, nodding towards a nigh-emaciated frame upon which a university-branded sweatsuit withers. Look at the poor bitch, she seems hardly there. Beneath her lined forehead, Valletta's eyes bulge, gummy crimson. Sniffing back errant mucus, she pulls thinning hairs from her cranium to roll between thumb and forefinger before discarding. Should I hug her? Shake her hand? Gal ponders, uneasy. 
She knows me better than anyone else ever will. That case made us soul sisters. Make that soulless. God, it hurts to see her pallid face again. Her shattered intensity. I tried to forget it, along with everything, even myself. Did I come here to die? Or to relearn how to live? Valetta pulls an item from her pocket, unfolds it, hands it over. Remember us in those days? She asks. So serious in our matching outfits. Our shared delusion that justice existed. Finger tracing the crease photograph, squinting sense from the gloaming, Gail confirms. I remember. Look at us, she marvels, in our black pantsuits and heels, our white blouses crisp and neat. Even our figures have been comparable. Somewhere between the two extremes we've become. We wore wedding rings then, installed by long-divorced husbands whose faces are featureless on the rare occasions that I remember them. After Gal returns the photograph to Valletta, the woman tears it into confetti that she tosses overhead. We considered ourselves innocents when our births made us complicit in history's worst atrocity, humanity's proliferation. Valletta declares, sniffling, if our race ever develops morality, we'll enter extinction that very day. Fuck you, Gail spits. Why did you come here? Why did I? A moment implodes then. You know why. Idiotically, we thought they'd return. Swallowing a stillborn gasp, Gail whispers, the teepees. Thirteen years for thirteen of them. Numerology suggests significance in that number. You know, a karmic upheaval. Thirteen consumed the last supper. Thirteen colonies shat this country into existence. I began menstruating at age thirteen. Thirteen disappearances drew us here in the first place. Thirteen- Yeah, I get it. You like numbers. Almost wistful, Gail hisses. Do you remember them? The way they looked? Lit from within as they were? Human hair and tendons threading different flesh shades together, she avoids saying. The bones that kept the things upright. Tibia, fibula, ulna, and femur. Eyes, teeth, fingernails, and toenails. Thousands of them. Artfully embedded in the flesh. Bizarrely silhouetted smoke flaps. The scent of... Please, get out of my head. Always, Valletta answers, somehow grinning. So terrifying. So... Beautiful. The level of craftsmanship that went into each... A network of madmen and artists must have been working for years, symbiotically. They've biologically ascended beyond their human components... Gail thought, on that execrable evening, approaching the nearest TP. Her mentality was fevered, permeated with the unearthly. Is it my imagination, or do they breathe as living organisms? Have such incongruities always existed? Did Homo sapiens devolve from them long ago? In this festering city, where philandering husbands got their cocks sucked at business lunches, and didn't even have the decency to wipe the lipstick from their zippers afterwards. Exotic dancers of both genders had disappeared, too many to ignore. Let the dykes have it, had been the chuckled decision, casting Gail and Valletta into an abyss of neon vein desperation, where the living mourn themselves 
being groped by the slovenly. Their peers love to crack wise. Being the only female detectives in the city, Gail and Valletta had heard them all. They partnered up to escape the crude jokes, awkward flirting, and unvoiced despondency of their male colleagues. For years, the two had pooled their intuitions to locate corpses, young and old, along with the scum fucks who'd created then disposed of them. Occasionally, they'd return broken survivors to society, as if those withdrawn wretches hadn't suffered enough already. When Gail and Valletta began donning matching pantsuits out of some vague sense of sisterhood that seemed pathetic in retrospect, their peers had pointed out their wedding rings and labelled them spouses. They'd met Gail and Valletta's husbands. They said it anyway. With doleful prestidigitation, Valletta conjures a second folded photograph and hands it over. Before unfolding it, Gail predicts, Bernard Mullins? Who else could it be? Valletta agrees. Granting herself confirmation, Gail glimpses the self-satisfied corpulence of a strip club proprietor, able to fuck whomever he wished through intimidation. His sister was married to good old Governor Ken, after all, whose drug cartel connections weren't as clandestine as he believed them to be. Bernard's friends were well-dressed killers. His dancers barely spoke English. Even his bouncers had records. From Bernard's four family-unfriendly establishments, 13 dancers had disappeared over five weeks. Glitter sales went down. Everyone was worried. During the man's reptilian gaze as a burrowed breastwood, Gail and Valletta questioned him. Any suspicious patrons lately? Etc. Etc. As if spitting lines from a script, the man feigned cooperation and concern. Well, nobody immediately comes to mind. But you're welcome to our surveillance footage. Anything I can do. Anything. Fuck that guy, Gail declared, starting the car. Minutes later. Let's surveil that pervert, Valletta suggested. Days later, their unmarked vehicle trailed Bernard to a well-to-do neighbourhood. And whose rustic craftsman luxury house did he enter? Swinging a bottle of Il Poggione 2001 Brunello di Montalcino at his side? Good old Governor Ken's, of course. The front door swung open, and Gail and Valletta glimpsed Bernard's younger sister, Agatha, with a smile so strained that her lips threatened to split, wearing an evening dress cut low to expose drooping cleavage. She hugged her brother, as if she was sculpted of slug ooze. One back pat, two back pat. Get off of me, you pathetic monster, Agatha seemed to think. When he stumbled back outside hours later... Bernard's tire was looser. Saw stained his shirt, a brown Rorschach blot. A clouded expression continuously crumpled his face, as if he'd reached a grim decision, or was working his way toward one. Returning to his Porsche Panamera, he sat slumped for some minutes, head in hands, and then returned the way he'd arrived. The night seemed metallic, overlaid with a silver sheen, Passing motorists appeared faceless, unfinished. Refugees from mannequin nightmares. Hearing teeth grinding, Gal wondered whom they belonged to. Her partner or herself. To Bernard's peculiar residence, an octagon house full of shuttered arch windows they travelled, parking a few houses distant. 
on edge. Gail was sloppy about it, nudging a trash can off the curb, berthing a steel clatter. Still. Bernard only glanced in their direction for a moment, and then unlocked his front entry. Minutes later came a gunshot, which summoned them inside, firearms drawn. Aside from Bernard's crumpled corpse, the warm-barreled Glock in his hand, and the gestural abstraction he'd painted with his own brains, lifeblood and cranium, the house was empty, unornamented, devoid of furniture. Its parquet flooring and walls echoed every footfall, made every syllable solemn, as Valletta poked Bernard with the toe of her boot and muttered, Serves you right, you bastard. After the funeral, they spoke with good old Governor Ken, who fiddled with his tie, trying on a series of expressions, hoping that one conveyed sorrow. An absolute shock, he insisted, smiley-eyed. He'd been so convivial at dinner, you'd never know he'd been suffering. Aside him, Agatha bounced the governor's eight-month-old son in her arms, cooing to avoid adult convo. Pulling photographs of attractive if you squint missing persons from her jacket, Gail fanned them before good old Governor Ken, inquiring, Recognise any of these good people? Should I? He responded, raising an eyebrow. They worked at Bernard's establishments, and disappeared off the face of the earth, seemingly. Did Bernard ever mention them to you, even in passing? Glancing to his child, his wife, then finally back to Gail, the governor replied, Listen, in light of Bernard's profession, I'm sure you'd both like to believe that I'm waist deep in sordidness. But truthfully, he and I only ever discuss sports and musical theatre. Mr. Family Values, Valletta muttered, sneering. Infuriatingly, good old Governor Ken winked at her. Without saying farewell, he escorted his wife to their limousine. Don't touch me, Agatha shrieked therein assuming that closed doors equaled soundproofing. No, I'm not taking those goddamn pills again. Watching the vehicle drive off, Valetta grabbed Gail by the elbow and leaned over as if she was about to kiss her. Remember when I visited the bathroom earlier? Guess what I did. Pointing towards the limo, she answered herself with two words. GPS tracker. Glancing down at her hands... Gail realises that this time, she's the photo shredder. Amputated features fill her grasp. Shivering, she tosses the confetti over her shoulder. Eyes swivelling back to Valletta, she sees a third photo outthrust, an official gubernatorial portrait. The drive spanned hours, interstates and side roads. He must have found the tracker and tossed it, Gail posited at one point. Either that, or he's dead. Why else would his limousine be parked in the middle of nowhere for two days? Night fell as a sodden curtain, humid glacial. Down its ebon gullet they travelled. Gail's every eye blink was weighted, her nerves firecrackers popping. Continually, she glanced at Valletta to confirm that she wasn't alone. When they finally reached the limousine, they found it slumbering, empty, with every door open. Either its battery had died, or somebody had deactivated its interior lighting. Shining flashlights, they spied bloodstained seats. A baby shrieked in the distance, agonised, as if they were being pulled apart, slowly. Seeking it, they discovered the steam bed, 
whereupon loomed thirteen teepees. The centermost tent stood taller, sharper than the dozen encircling it. Black cones against starless firmament, they were scarcely discernible. Even before the flashlight beams found them, they felt wrong. Is that human? Valletta asked. For the first time since Gail had met her, the woman's tone carried no implied sneer. Feeling ice fingers crawl her epidermis, burdened by the suddenly anvil-like weight of her occupied shoulder holster, Gal made no attempt to answer. A grim inevitability had seized her, feeling half out of body, as if she were being observed by thousands of night vision goggled satyrs. Bleachers seated, just out of sight, she slid foot after foot towards the nearest structure. A cold voice in her head narrated, Strips in all shades of human, eyes tendon-stitched at their confluence points, somehow crying, teeth, toenails and fingernails embedded, everywhere, forming patterns, hard to look at. Are they moving? TP designs replicate imagery from visions and dreamscapes, right? Didn't I read that, years ago? But where's the earth and sky iconography? indicative of Native American craftsmanship. What manner of beings co-opted and desecrated their tradition? Inside, the tent skeleton. Arterial lining. Is that my heartbeat? Where's that wind coming from? Is the teepee breathing? She felt as if she should move, but it seemed she'd turned statue. Only after hearing her name called did Gail find her feet. Emerging back into the night, she saw the Senemo's tent spilling forth a nasty indigo radiance from its open door and antler-esque smoke flaps. Upon a pulped muscle altar therein, a red-faced infant shrieked, kicking its little legs, waving its tiny arms. Somebody leaned over it, smiling impossibly, wider than his face good old Governor Kent. Whatever light source glowed purple, it suddenly jumped tense. Now an elderly man, paunched and liver spotted in stained underpants, wriggled his tongue, spotlit. From a dark right wood teepee, a wet syllable chanting entered Gail's ears. She turned to Valletta, but the woman was gone, her flashlight abandoned. Gail prayed to God that remained hypothetical. Again, the light jumped. A nude crone exited a leftward tent, sagging breasts, oaken fleshed, and then retreated as if she were rewound footage. Something inhuman called Gail's name, and it sang with an unraveling tenor. Every tent self-illuminated, then fell dark. Numb-fingered, Gail groped for a firearm. Tripping, she shredded her knees though the pain remained distant. Replicated thirteenfold, the baby shrieked from every structure. Eyes swiveling from tent to tent as she stood, gracefully mumbling, Gail felt a nard grip meet her shoulder. Giggling, the old man frothed cold spittle onto her neck. Unseen hands began groping as Gail's flashlight died. Where are the stars? She wondered, mentally retreating. She awoke in daylight, 
a wide-eyed Valletta shaking her shoulder. The woman had sprouted fresh wrinkles. She seemed hardly there. The tents were gone, as was the limo. Silently, they drove back to the city. Filing no reports, they watched their respective careers apathetically perish, along with their marriages soon after. Eventually, they moved in together to wallow in shared misery. Realising that they no longer lusted after men, they experimented with lesbianism one hollow evening, spurred by a bottle of red and several lines of coke. Dry and ugly, it was. Neither bothered faking an orgasm, as each would have seen through it. Reporting more stripper disappearances, newscasters seemed amused. Years fell down the bottle, as the world grayed and withered. Good old Governor Ken became grandfatherly Vice President Ken, champion for Christian values. Illegible graffiti sprang up everywhere, instantly fading. One night, Gail pushed herself off the couch to find Valletta engaged in arts and crafts, constructing papier-mâché teepees from scissor-amputated ad features and scraps of anatomical diagrams. I can't get it right, she shrieked. Help me, Gail. I can't stop till it's perfect. Impossibly in the present, Valletta holds a tiny teepee composed of three shredded photographs. Giggling, she tosses it skyward. As the teepee unravels into mist, she inquires, Do you remember last year? Do you, Gail? Mad, Valletta had been. Jittering, pulling her hair out. Muttering of a 13th anniversary, she'd vanished for days to parts unknown. Awoken by living room thumping, the bleary-eyed Gale stumbled upon the unspeakable, a fugitive from a demon's bestiary, a crude imitation of the steambed teepees, reeking, rotting, dripping crimson, stood afore her, constructed from pet store fauna, birds, cats, rodents, dogs, fish, reptiles, rabbits and spiders. Something was wrong with its shadow. Furry, it wriggled across the carpet. Licking her lips, the nude Valletta whispered, Close, but no cigar. You killed me, Valletta says, and Gail relives it. Terrified beyond rationality by a roommate's new hobby, Hearing an infantile gurgling emanating from Valletta's teepee, Gail let instinct take over. Retrieving a steak knife from the sink, she rushed into the madwoman's embrace, jabbing and twisting until they both collapsed. Awakening, Gail realised that Valletta and her teepee were absent, though bloodstains remained. Into the bottle, she retreated. If the stars would only come back... Everything would be fine, Gail thinks, in the present. A car's battery dies, along with its headlights. Nearby, an infant shrieks eternally. Gail, Valletta says in parting, widening impossibly. Her eyes and mouth gush indigo luminescence. From ten digits, her hands spill matching radiance. Arcing, those lights reach thirteen locations. Trailed by Valletta's branching flesh. Exiting the pretense of corporality, the ex-detective twists, turning inside out, reconfiguring. 
becoming myriad eyes, teeth, nails, bones, and flesh stripped united by sinew and braided hair. A letter's shade evolves into the abstract. Thirteen teepees spilling indigo light. Each respires and has a deafening heartbeat. Unhesitant, Gale strides towards the centermost. listening to the Night's End podcast, which is a production of Dissonance Media. A myth we call emptiness was written by Jeremy Thompson. For more from Jeremy, head on over to www.amazon.com forward slash author forward slash Jeremy Thompson. If you're enjoying listening to the podcast, our best promotion can be you. Why not tell a friend? Or if you're feeling generous, please leave us a review and a five-star rating. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay horrific everyone.